0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Just what are college athletes' rights when it comes to the First Amendment, procedural due process, and Title IX? Let's go through a case that will help us answer this question. In 2014, Noriana Radwin, then a women's soccer player at the University of Connecticut and recipient of a one year athletic scholarship for soccer, raised her middle finger to a television camera during her team's post-game celebration after winning a tournament championship. The game was being nationally televised, and Radwin's gesture was captured on the broadcast. Although she initially was suspended from further tournament games for that gesture, Radwin was ultimately also punished by UConn with a mid-year termination of her athletic scholarship. The United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit published a significant ruling recently that college administrators should be aware of in regards to this case. Joining the podcast to walk through the case is Jacob Sapp, a former institutional compliance officer and Title IX administrator, now an attorney with Bricker & Eckler Law Firm. Jake wrote three articles on the firm's website on the specifics of this case, and he joins me for a conversation providing important takeaways for higher education leaders. Again, this podcast attempts to answer this question in 2023, just what are a college athlete's rights when it comes to the First Amendment, procedural due process by its institution, and in Title IX, when the Athletics Department imposes its own disciplinary processes. Jacob, welcome to the podcast. So glad that you could join me today. Thank
1: you so much for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here.
0: Well, you work for a firm and it's based out of Columbus, Ohio, Bricker Bricker Eckler. Do I have that correct?
1: Yeah, Bricker and Eckler. And we just recently announced that we're doing a a pretty substantial merger with a firm, uh, Graydon. And so we're soon to be Bricker and Graydon, uh, I believe, in the beginning of April this year.
0: Well, congratulations early on that. I hope it goes smoothly. Um, but one of the things that you do is, is you, you know provide written content, sort of narratives about cases that have hit your radar, that higher educator education administrators should really be paying attention to. And this one that you put out in January just really kind of set me back. And I was like, Jacob has to come on the podcast and talk about this. Tell us about this, this athlete, this, I think, the women's soccer player at the University of Connecticut. And she got herself in, in a fair amount of hot water over doing something that you know this these days isn't as big of a deal as, as it once was. But clearly, the university thought it was a very big deal. So, walk us through the scenario that brought you brought that case to court. Okay,
1: so uh, the case is a, a second circuit uh, at the circuit uh, level of appeal, uh, the appellate division, uh, Radman v. Manuel, right? Radwin was a female soccer player on the team who after a important tournament win uh, was filmed and this was being filmed by ESPN. And so it was a nationally televised game. I think it was being streamed on ESPN 2, 3 or or the U. Um, After the win, all of the female soccer players on the team Uh, You know, congregated together and were celebrating, and she flicked off the camera um, in some sort of, you know, in the moment celebration and then quickly realized what she was doing and kind of stopped. But then, you know, it was kind of at that point. This
0: was after the game ended, is that right? This was was after the game. Okay.
1: This is a really important distinction that the court looked at because we're specifically focused on what the rules are allowed when regulating college athlete expression and kind of when they're representing the institution versus when they're not representing the institution. That's a really important distinction and we'll get back to that, but um, it fully closed, you know, everyone's still, this is immediately after the game, you know, the, the, I don't know if soccer is, uses a buzzer, you know, but the, the time expires and they win and they're immediately afterwards celebrating and the middle finger comes up, it's right front center view streamed national television. And then the student is contacted later, you know, by uh, one of the coaches that says, hey, we're gonna have to deal with this. An administrator comes up and, and says, hey, we're, you know, there's gonna be some sort of disciplinary action. But then there were a number of different actions taken by the institution um, which were alleged by Radwin in this case to really not follow the procedures that it should have at the institutional level. As far as the disciplinary process uh, went through, not the general student code of conduct grievance procedure, which are you know usually ordinarily updated by counsel for the institution or for the compliance office to make sure, that it has, you know, as a public institution, appropriate you know, procedural due process protections, notice, opportunity to be heard, appeal decision or appeal rights, et cetera. Um, but this was kind of run through a quasi-athletic uh, procedure which wasn't really defined that well or was not afforded those uh, individuals the same rights uh, procedural rights as the general student policy. Um, and so the the student in the lawsuit, Radwin, alleged that she, uh, after she got noticed from the financial aid office that her scholarship was being cut, um, she attempted to appeal that decision, but she had been told different dates about what time to have her appeal in by, and the office said, oh, too late. Um, it's just a really unfortunate situation for her, losing her scholarship, losing the opportunity to play uh, soccer at the University of Connecticut, but then also, uh, you know, having to having to eventually transfer schools, and so I think this was, you know, this was almost eight, seven years ago when this happened. And this case has kind of gotten the attention of the ACLU throughout the years, um, and, and there has been a, a fair amount of uh, media about it, just because of the fact that it touches so many important issues in college athletes. Um, and freedom of speech, due process protections, and Title
0: IX. Yeah, and so so let's just briefly hit for the listeners what those those key points are when you talk about it. One of the things I mentioned to you was my absolute shock when it went to the Second Circuit that – they the, the your article states that they viewed this scholarship as a you know i guess at that point it was a year to year scholarship mm-hmm. as like an employment contract so therefore they were treating this athlete as an employee at will and of course, that sends up all kinds of red flags and things like that, because that's exactly what one side of the world has been fighting for, is for athletes to have the same rights as employees, so to be able to collectively bargain and that type of thing. But on the other side, is that what institutions intend when they create this, this scholarship agreement? So um, let's talk about that a little bit first. So, So where did the Second Circuit come up with this idea that she was actually an at-will employee? So
1: the second circuit didn't necessarily say that she was an at-will employee, but they looked at the scenario of when a person is owed constitutional procedural due process. And before you get there, you have to determine, do they have a constitutionally protected right? Right. Um, And to do that, the circuit court evaluated, uh, they looked at, they did compare it to, employee contracts, right? And they said that in in this case, uh, the student was given a one year, so a fixed duration, essentially a contract that was only terminable at will, right? Not, um, or it was only terminable, I'm sorry, uh, for cause. It was not at will, right? And so there had to be a reason and it was set for one year length of time. Very much like, an employment contract for cause and so therefore they found that it does have the kind of reliance expectation that an individual that an employee under a uh, employment contract would have and then they followed that up with well they have a reliance expectation in it but what's the importance of that expect of that reliance expectation well in this student athletes case it was a reliance on the funds, not only for the education purposes, tuition, housing, books, et cetera, right? But it went past that. And this is one of the really important pieces where the, the court distinguished, you know, there have been a lot of rulings in the past that said there is no right, you know, af- participation in college inter- uh, athletics is a privilege, not a right. But the the court in this specific case looked at beyond the mere financials importance of the scholarship to the athletes. And they said that those scholarships mean more, they they extend the value extends past paying for this semester and goes towards future educational and future professional opportunities. Hmm. So therefore these athletic scholarships in the second circuit are a protected constitutional prop. They do have a, a protected property interest, right? meaning we cannot just take them away without some sort of appropriate, meaningful opportunity to be heard, which the plaintiff alleged in this case did not happen. But we kind of got cut off of this full analysis by the court because they granted immunity to the the institution and the officers responsible for handling this because this was a novel issue. All of these issues, except for the Title IX issue, were novel scenarios meaning that the the courts aren't going to punish a person when that person didn't know the rule that they were violating. And because this court established these new rules, they did provide immunity to the institution and they didn't go into what kind of process is owed to athletes at risk of losing their protected property interests in the form of their athletic scholarships in the second circuit. But we do have, as I shared in the second uh, version of the the second uh, in my the second article in my series uh, on this specific case, you know, we do have some guideposts out there uh, in the form of the Supreme Court's Matthew v. Eldridge balancing test.
0: So, um, help my listeners understand: Is this something they should be? You address the issue of first the, the the fact that this went outside of the normal student conduct process. And secondly, it seemed to be rather arbitrary, at least to the plaintiff, it seemed to be arbitrary. So what are the takeaways for institutions who are like, wow, is it, are we in trouble here? Many of them have student athlete handbooks. Many of them have a process already written in their handbooks. What should they be paying attention to?
1: Well, I think they really need to have a serious conversation with their athletics uh, whether it's the AD or whether there's a position within that athletics department responsible for follow-through of those specific athlete grievance procedures, right? We need to have a serious conversation, making sure that it's, it's great if we have a policy. Yeah. We need to make sure that one, that policy is compliant. Two, we need to make sure that we're following that policy when we do initiate these agreements procedures, right? And I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the biggest takeaways for ADs to understand, you know, um, if we are going to have an in-house procedure, it cannot just be words on paper, but in practice, it is arbitrary. You're gonna find yourself in hot water. You know, I would I would liken some or I would call back to some of these serious uh, issues that were, mishandled or handled uh by the University of Texas or Baylor uh regarding separate athletic handbook policies versus uh, grievance procedures under the general code student code of conduct right Um, now we've had a lot of updates specifically the title nine federal regulations since then how to handle uh sexual misconduct cases uh, that involve employees and students Mm -hmm. but non-sexual misconduct issues are really not getting as much attention as the Title IX issues, right? And because of that, I think that we need to not necessarily say that non-sexual misconduct issues have to go through a process that looks like the grievance procedure in the Title IX regulations, but we need to speak with our general counsels or with our compliance officers who are you know, obviously the, the general counselors are gonna be licensed to t- practicing attorneys. The compliance officers may have JVs, but we need to have meaningful conversations about what our specific federal circuit court and or our state legislature has said about the types of grievance processes that are required by us at public institutions. And then at our private institutions where, you know, due process is just a a funny word that doesn't necessarily <laughs> apply but we are held under breach of contract uh, and almost every institution is going to have, oh, if you're going through our grievance procedure, you know, know, we we provide a fair process. Um, But then we start looking at some of these cases over the past couple of years that look at what does that actually mean, right? And they almost track the public institution due process
0: cases. Interesting, interesting. So just to kind of close this point now, so there's no... Uh, legal precedent from this statement in there that the court, the Second Circuit was trying to find uh, the make a marriage between the scholarship contract and and an employment contract. But is there any risk to the institutions now that that's out there and that the courts are looking for something to kind of hang their hat on so they can equate these things?
1: I think that oftentimes when looking at student or you know college cases whether it's title nine or or other forms of misconduct courts do often draw parallels between um what's going on at the institution and title seven even if they are not um, title seven cases but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're interpreting uh you know these student athletes to be employees right that connection has not been made but I think it is, you know, like you're saying, it is worth noting that, you know, they did make that comparison, but I don't draw the same. I don't draw the conclusion that we're at risk or institutions should start considering athletes as employees just because of this, just because of this ruling.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. So one of the other points that I thought was uh, interesting, notable was that the, the part of her case that survived summary judgment when it went up to circuit the Second Circuit was this idea of, uh, I call it, disparate treatment. Mm-hmm. But the way they applied the, the um, disciplinary rules to male athletes versus her as a female athlete. Right. So give us some insight on that.
1: Right. So that's really focusing on the Title IX claim in this okay. case, which is a selective enforcement claim. Uh, or a, you know, when uh, when someone who has been uh, disciplined by the institution and they're going to argue that gender affected their uh, affected the outcome or the reasons for their claim, they usually there's a bit of a circuit split right now uh, between the plausible inference under Title IX, saying that there was a plausible inference that my gender affected. My case, or I wasn't treated fairly because of my gender versus uh, the traditional understandings, the two causes of action, erroneous outcome or selective enforcement. Now, uh, in this case, Radwin was saying that her uh, gender was a reason for the differential treatment that you're saying. And, uh, you know, she very clearly pointed to other uh, examples of the athletics department uh, punishing or not punishing male athletes for not exactly the same type of conduct, but similar kinds of conduct. You know, uh, one of the examples was In a football game, one of the male athletes, you know, threw the ball or kicked the ball into the stands, and the result of that was a a penalty, you know, which cost the team 15 yards. Um, And so she was pointing to a time where another student athlete was representing the institution in a game or or closely thereafter and received a misconduct, if you will. But then also another student athlete, male athlete, who outside of a game or outside of practice. you know, committed some sort of minor crime um, and did not receive a very hefty punishment. Some, you know, like a had to attend a webinar or write an essay or something like yeah,
0: that. Yeah, yeah, kind of a um, slap on the wrist kind of thing. Right. Both. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, no punishment in the first instant instance, uh, slap on the wrist in the second instance, and so the court at that point said, even though there are more examples that Radwin, the plaintiff in this case, pointed out. Ah, uh, the court did say that you know I'm starting to get the idea that there is enough here to say gender may have influenced this decision. Therefore, we're going to allow the the Title IX case um, to continue, and the you know that is very much set in stone. Uh, and so there was not uh, immunity granted on those specific issues on the. Title let's, you,
0: let's remind our listeners that. What she lost was first, she didn't have it, what she felt was a fair hearing mm-hmm. and a fair process to follow. It wasn't clear. And then secondly, she lost a full athletic scholarship, whereas right. the other two had an in-game penalty and had to watch a webinar who were both on the men's sports side. So that's where she felt she was being treated differently.
1: Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, I mean, you know in these Title IX lawsuits they really focus on okay obviously gender is the, dip, the is the is the the line to cross but then really getting at why was somebody treated differently right and when you don't have another explanation it is plausible that gender is the reason for it right but I think that even this Title IX point really really enforces the procedural due process point which is the fact that we need to make sure that our athletics department had has clearly defined procedures which are compliant, and if you do use uh, athletic procedures that are different than general student conduct procedures, we need to make sure that they are compliant with our state requirements, right. with our federal circuit requirements, uh, and that those are actually in practice, right? We need to make sure that the administrators in charge of carrying through with that grievance procedure is following that grievance procedure, or else we're going to look at arbitrary and capricious rulings, which is never a good thing in court.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Never. It's interesting. I'm currently teaching a master's class at Penn, and we just spent the first couple weeks looking at student-athlete handbooks, and looking at what how different they were from, let's say, a school like Penn State versus a school like Florida International or something like that. And I think the students were absolutely amazed at how inconsistent the, the handbooks were. So if you're offering some guidance to presidents and senior campus leaders about their legal exposure, would one of the first things be take a look at your handbook? <laughs>
1: you no, know, the, the the sources. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Absolutely, you know. When when you're balanced when you're trying to audit, you know it, a, a really solid practice, especially in athletics and with the athletics department, um, you know obviously every couple of years or maybe a little longer than that, you're doing a, a an audit of your Title Nine, uh, your audit of your athlete numbers and your operations to make sure that you can satisfy one of the three part tests for uh, athletic compliance under Title IX. Um, but then we need to look past that guidance from the department and we need to look at the general grievance procedure issue, um, which is articulated you know, pretty concisely by this case. Now, again, this is only the second circuit. This is not a ruling that's applicable across the country, but it's a really great opportunity to get out in front of a potential issue just by bringing up the conversation, right? Um, and I know that budgets are, are tight Right now, especially following COVID and, and with athletics, a lot of institutions have had to make substantial cuts to their uh, to their athletic departments over the past year or two because of COVID-19. Um, but we have to make sure that we're not forgetting uh, the, to apply the resources required to make sure that we're not found responsible for a violation by OCR or in the court system.
0: It's a great point. It's a great point. The, la- the last question I wanted to ask you goes off this this track a little bit from this case, but just to talk in general about free speech. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, athletes have more platforms today to t- tell people what they're thinking and how they believe this went and that went. And uh, have, have, have the institutions' responsibilities around free speech? changed because of all the platform access? Can an athlete go on an anti-Semitic rant? Can they talk about um, how much they think their institutions should divest from fossil fuels? I mean, you know, those kinds of things. What can an athlete do that doesn't get them in trouble and they lose their scholarship? Which is what yeah. they worry about.
1: Yeah, that's that's a, that's a really great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that there were really important First Amendment points raised by this case, and that being institutions of higher education are different than K through 12 institutions of of, of education, right? And the majority of Supreme Court rulings on uh, freedom of speech and protective First Amendment activities within education are focused on the K through 12 level. Uh, Most everyone will be familiar with the famous Tinker case, Hazelwood, Fraser, um, you know, uh, protesting Vietnam with my armband, is that a substantial disruption? Uh, are you allowed to regulate lewd and offensive speech, even if it doesn't cause a substantial disruption? Um, and one of the things really pointed out by this case is that those, those K through 12 cases should not be taken as the gospel for higher education. But you know, the rules involving higher education are evolving, but you're still allowed to have reasonable guidelines, but narrowing the question, narrowing the answer down specifically to student athletes, we have to keep in mind, or I think it's very important to keep in mind that institutions can place more narrow, detailed restrictions on their athletes when they are representing the institution as a player, as in this case, versus the general student body, yes. right? Um, especially, you know, with our, obviously our focus right now is on public institutions. Um, getting into issues of, you know, social media use. Well, are they using, the, are they uh, asking these questions or posting these materials on campus or, or off campus? Um, they all of these questions are very, very fact specific. Uh, I know that we had a K through K-12 case regarding the cheerleader, uh, you know, in, in Snapchat, but it was an off-campus, but the Supreme Court still said, you know, there is an interest that schools have um, in, uh, in promoting, I, I want to say, you know, in promoting good, essentially good behavior, but higher education is a way different animal. Right. The marketplace of ideas is really at, you know, is really alive and and meant to be alive at the institution in the in the in the classrooms at the higher education uh, level. And so, um, you know, making rants and and remarks of that nature that you mentioned, um, if it starts to get into harassing levels, then obviously there's a discrimination policy that's going to apply. If it doesn't, well, you're going to have to look at what your policy specifically says. Um, I know that, what was it, the 11th Circuit just recently last year took a really strong uh, cut at UCF's uh, policy on discrimination about it being too broad Um, and its non discriminate or its discrimination policy and adjacent policies. Um, which could be a really good example for other institutions to look at and say, you know, how is this federal circuit court addressing these uh, peripheral student speech issues? And on the other hand, the how are the institutions attempting to prohibit that those forms of speech, and when do they cross the line in doing so?
0: Yeah, I think it's a really uh, interesting but also fraught with peril area because. Athletics, the profile keeps raising, particularly on division one campuses of the athletes, and they're becoming more and more noticeable by other members of the public and the student population in general. And, you know, we have uh, conference media companies that are basically there trying to find stories to tell and that type of thing. So if you're an athlete and you make a a mistake, you say something that's wrong on, on Twitter or Facebook. And you apologize. You you wonder is is that enough? Or do we start worrying about is that affect the institution's brand? Does that affect my brand? Uh, and I think I think people can be over, can overreact sometimes, thinking like, well, we need to shut that down right away. Way back in the early days of social media, the idea was, well, well, you're just not going to have a Twitter account, or you're just not going to have a, an Instagram account. That has gone out the window, but today you know, there's so many different platforms that they're on in and, and so many different ways. You'd have to have a full-time person just watching like an entire team's social media profile. So again, one takeaway, if you would, for, for presidents who are trying to provide support and assistance to their athletics department about this or to their alumni who are knocking on the door saying, did you see what so-and-so said on TikTok? You know, that type of thing.
1: Wow. To boil it all down, I think uh, think the most important takeaway for presidents uh, to consider on this specific issue would be (laughs) talk to your legal counsel when an issue comes up. You don't want to handle this uh, on your own. You want to make sure that you're surrounded by good people who understand the law, Mm -hmm. and understand the law as it specifically relates to your state and to your federal circuit. This can be a very specialized area and not using attorneys or compliance officers that are specialized in this area can potentially lead to an issue. So um, I would definitely make, you know, my biggest piece of non-legal legal legal advice is to say, um, make sure you're surrounded by people who know the law and understand what to do. Um, And as far as fact-specific, (laughs) questions go, I'll give you the classic attorney answer of it depends.
0: It depends. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Jacob, this has been a fascinating conversation. I know we could talk much longer about it, but this particular case brought up so many interesting Mm -hmm. uh, uh, concepts that still relate today. And I wanted to bring your expertise to the forefront. So I'm very glad you could spend some time with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to uh, a conversation in the future about anything else that comes up.
0: Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, Karen.